chapter of uh, Matthew's Gospel. And really, that chapter begins, um, and it goes through chapter 7, part of cha- in and through part of chapter 7, and it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people just think the Sermon on the Mount is Beatitudes. It's not. It incorporates a couple of chapters. But so far, we have studied what you could call the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes and the call to be salt and light for a world that's steeped in darkness and is decaying around us. So at this point, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 5, we actually move into what is known as the body of the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord instructs his disciples how to be salt and light, how to live a righteous life based on the heart of the law. And listen carefully, not on the law that has been skewed by religiosity and the traditions of men. And that's what had happened to the law over time. That he's going to teach us now how to take from the Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 20. First gospel after Malachi, the Italian prophet, Malachi. All right, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be any, by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices the kingdom of heaven, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we must remember that Jesus is speaking to a mostly Jewish audience, and Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience in order to demonstrate and show through Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah and King, the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews were looking for. So if you read Matthew's gospel, you'll see him say, it is written, and then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. All righty? So he's trying, in Matthew's gospel, he's showing that Jesus is the Messiah. And we also must understand that Jesus is accused by the religious leaders of the day for setting out to destroy the law of Moses and misleading the people because of his teachings and because of his actions. So, for example, if you look in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees rail him because he healed on the Sabbath. And they also chastised the disciples because they were walking along, picking heads of grain in order to eat on the Sabbath. And then if you go on and look at Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees also challenged Christ for breaking the traditions of men because him and his disciples ate with unclean hands. At this point, Jesus rebukes them because he says, you don't understand the heart of the law. You're only living by a legalistic, ritualistic system on trying to make yourself righteous before a holy God. And all throughout chapters 5, verses 41 to 28, which is often referred to as the antithesis to the law, Jesus is now going to teach what the heart of the law means, what God really intended when he gave the law to Moses, not a system of religiosity and traditions, but what comes out of the true teaching of God's word so that people can apply it and live as salt and life, light in their lives. Amen? And with that said, we have to understand now, Jesus has to refute three misconceptions about his relationship to the law. And the first is that he came to destroy the law. 
The second misconception is that the law is unimportant, and the third is that the law is a gateway to heaven. All right, listen to Matthew uh, 5.17 again. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. So right from the start, Jesus starts a defense that he hasn't come to abolish the law, the Torah, and he has not come to abolish anything that's written in, through, or by the prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote the books that bear their name. What Jesus is doing here, he's refuting the teachings of men in regards to the law. And they were placing a heavy burden on the people and reinforcing law upon law to follow this religious ritual. And it became a heavy yoke for the people to carry. And what they, why they did this is they were trying to keep the people for transgressing from transgressing the original word of God, but then backed it up with law upon law. And let me just uh, give you some terms so that you understand what was going on here. The Mishnah is the original oral law written down, okay? And the Gemara is the record of the rabbinical discussions about these things that both the Gemara and the Mishnah now become part of the Talmud, which it becomes part of the Jewish law, the uh, Halakha, which uh, they would follow. So they would follow the traditions of men and the rituals of men. And in time, that became more important than the inspired word of God. So this is what they were following. And unfortunately, these things broke with the intent of God's moral law. And it's these laws, the traditions of men, that the Lord is refuting in in uh, in these practices that the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of. They were accusing Jesus of violating them, and him and his disciples were not following the traditions of the elders, and therefore they saw him as refuting the Old Testament law and the Mosaic law. It's unfortunate, but true. But in fact, Jesus did nothing of the sort. He was actually teaching the true meaning and the heart of the law of God and saying it's not the rituals, it's not the traditions of men, but the heart of God's law that men need to learn. So it's, as even says, as far back in Deuteronomy, so those look to what God really intended for us to do. Amen? First, listen, we have to understand it's very, very important that Jesus comes out and says they have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill them. And I want to show you some ways in which God, uh, the Lord Jesus fulfilled them and what a blessing it is to us. First, he perfectly fulfilled the moral law of God of the Old Testament. He lived perfectly sinless and perfectly righteous. So in that way, he fulfilled the perfect moral law of God. And he is the only one as the God-man who did or was able to do that. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made him who what? Knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Boy, we could stop there and do a whole sermon. Because he sympathizes, he understands, not just sympathizes, but empathizes. He walked amongst us. He suffered, right? He saw the heartache and the pain. He was tempted, but he can empathize with our weaknesses. But look, one who was tempted in all things, yet without sin. Perfectly sinless. In 1 Peter 2, 2, 2, 2.22, he says this, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was perfectly holy, 
perfectly righteous, and perfectly fulfilled the moral law of God. Amen? And let's look at a second way the Lord fulfilled these teachings of the laws and the prophets. Now, we have to understand, in the original Greek, the word fulfilled was used so that they would point to the fulfillment of the predictions of the Old Testament prophecies. So what it's saying here is, is that, in essence, Jesus came and he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies that were pointing to the Messiah. So he fulfilled them perfectly. And um, as you can go back as far as Genesis 3.15 through the rest of the Holy Scriptures in Malachi and go through and go through and go through. And Jesus is the complete fulfillment from Genesis 3.15 all the way up to Malachi. And in um, Matthew 11.13 and 14, it says this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied, until John. And why until John? Because John came on the scene. He was the Elijah who was to come to show the coming of the Messiah and says they were all fulfilled until John because when Jesus comes on the scene, all is fulfilled in him. Prophecies fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Emmaus, when those guys are walking along, they're all downcast. Oh, man. And then Jesus comes up beside them. He doesn't tell them who he is and they're kind of kept from understanding who he is. And they're like, oh, he's don't you know what happened over these last weeks in Jerusalem when Jesus the prophet and they start going through, they're all downcast and then what does the Lord do? He begins in Moses and the prophets and he goes all the way through and shows that he is the Christ. The Christ had to suffer and go through these things but he gives them what? All the Old Testament scriptures pointing to the Messiah. And what I gave you in your, in your bulletins is just a brief summary. And I hope you all got them but these are back to back, all the different things. Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. And just look at the first eight. He'll be of the seed and offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And then it goes on. And two, he'll be the seed and offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fulfilled. He would be the king, a king descended from the tribe of Judah, fulfilled. Amen. Partially. He's always been the king, but he's coming back not as the humble carpenter, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? A prophet greater than Moses, descendant of King David. And go on. He would be born in, this is the time of year, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, and kings would come down and bow before him. And you can go through all those and see fulfilled in Christ. Old Testament prophecy, fulfilled in Jesus. And those three kings came or more, we don't know exactly how many they were, bowed down and worshipped him. as Praise Jesus. He is the fulfillment. So not only did Jesus fulfill the law in and of himself, but he was the fulfillment of all that was prophesied about the coming Messiah. Amen? And this actually leads to my third point of Jesus' fulfillment in that the entire ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. Amen? Listen to me. From the blood of those animals that was shed to cover Adam and Eve, to go through all the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy when it looks at what? All the blood that was shed by the animals for forgiveness of sin, whether it be the sin offering, the guilt offering, the Passover lamb, the day of atonement, were all pointing to the once for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God who would come and be the fulfillment of all that ceremonial law. Jesus, the Christ, amen? And that's exactly what John the Baptist says in John 1.29. Jesus comes walking up and he goes, Behold, the Lamb of God who 
who takes away the sin of the world because he was the final fulfillment sacrificial lamb who would complete the ceremonial sacrifices. Listen to Hebrews uh, 10, 11 to 12. It says this, Day after day, every priest stands the same sacrifice which can never take away sins, but they were pointing to the one, if you will. But when the, this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Never again does the sacrifice have to be done. It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered how many times? Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring many to God. Once for all, finished, done. Family, Jesus was the culmination and fulfillment of all the offerings and all the sacrifices made for sin. That's why on the cross he said that. It is finished. No longer did you have to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement. Not only atonement is done in Christ, complete forgiveness is done in Christ. Amen? So church, in this first major point, we have to see that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he came and completely fulfilled it in himself, kept it, in himself, all the prophecies, in himself, the ceremonial offerings, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So he didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it. And I just want you to listen to some of these blessings that I have down here, which are an understatement as a result of Christ fulfilling the complete law of Moses and the prophets. It says that now we are in Christ, does it not? Read one of TJ's favorite scriptures, Ephesians 1, 3 to 11. In Christ, in him, in him, in Christ, we are justified. And that term means it's just as if we've never sinned and just as we have perfectly kept the moral law of God. And why? Because we're in Christ. And because he kept it, it's as if we kept it. So think about that. We don't have to walk under the bondage of the law because in Christ it's fulfilled. Now we're going to get to a point, doesn't mean we sin, but we don't have to be under that bondage. Amen? And listen carefully. We never have to offer any sacrifice for sin. Never. Or be worried, listen, about the consequential judgment for sin because he became sin for us and took the judgment for us. And in Christ, we don't have to worry because what? Read Romans 6. We died with him. We buried with him. Crucified with him. Resurrected with him. In Christ. Consequential judgments for sin because in Christ it was taken care of. What a blessing. But listen, I have down here, it does not mean that we walk in presumptuous sin. Oh, good. Jesus died. I'm in Christ. Now I can go out and do thus and such. Hogwash. Because, read it, God will not be mocked. A man sows what he reaps. I always get that reversed. So he sows what he reaps. There are going to be disciplines if we think we can go out and presumptuously sin against God. There are consequences. And also, personally, if you can go out and sin against the God who you worship and said, save your soul, you really better check your salvation at the door. Seriously. Because if you love the Lord Jesus, you're not going to want to sin against him. But when we do, we have a great high priest that we can come before and say, I blew it again, Lord. Please forgive me. And our sins are covered and forgiven. Amen. Not in presumptuous sin, but in the daily struggles that we go through, God forgives. All right. 
Now, with that said, let's go on to our second point of misconception, and it's found in verse 18 of Matthew 5. Let's read it again. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, what Jesus is emphatically saying here is there's not one piece of the law that's going to be abolished. And as I did a little homework, listen carefully. He opens up with, truly I tell you. Look at that statement in 18. Truly I tell you. And that word truly is amen. Amen. So be it. Emphatically saying, so to abolish until. And we'll get to that. And he says, church, listen, the absolute truth is stated emphatically. And he says, not one in the Greek, not one iota. And in the Hebrew, it's yod. That not one iota, not one yod of a word is going to disappear. And then he goes on and he says, and uh, you have to understand that the iota or yod is like the, the English apostrophe. It's not even a little mark is going to be abolished from the law. And then he says this, the least stroke of the pen, which is the tittle, which is the smallest part of the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Neither one of these is going to be abolished. In other words, the complete word of God is going to stand until the appointed time. So Jesus, is, he's actually upholding the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And that's very important to us also, guys. All right, he emphasizes their permanence until a set time. And what do I mean? Twice in this portion of Scripture, he speaks of permanence of Scripture until. Until what? Well, that's a good question. So why don't we answer it according to the Word of God? He says until something. Well, the first until speaks of the permanence of the Scriptures until the heavens and earth disappear. In other words, not one word will disappear from the Word of God until this current world system, this current world order disappears. And we know from Scripture there is coming a time when the current heavens and earth will be consumed by fire and disappear. So there is coming a time. All right? Listen, I want to give you some Scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament that back this up. Isaiah 51.6 says, Lift up your eyes to heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will what? Vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And then he goes on to the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Be ready. Be ready. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done will be laid bare. And then finally, Revelation 21, the last book of the Scriptures. Then I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away and the sea was no more. So there's coming a time when the current heavens we see and this earth will be consumed with fire and disappear, but God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? So in light of these verses and the full counsel of God's word, we must understand that Jesus is stating in the, by the words of Scripture that there is a permanence until of the word of God until this heaven and earth disappear. All right? And the second until is very similar to the first. And what's going to be accomplished? All are waiting for the second coming of Christ. We're waiting for the rapture of the church. We're waiting what? To get resurrected bodies, to go to heaven, the millennial reign, the final defeat of Satan, and a new heavens and new earth. So when all that is accomplished, this will be done. It'll be done. So it's no longer necessary to have 
and may I say that reverently, have this because everything in it written is finished. It's done by the Word of God. Amen? So let's make some practical applications again. Because it's nice to study these things, but if we don't make practical application, what do we take? First of all, as I've already stated, Jesus perfectly kept the moral law of God, and being in Christ, so have we. And listen, therefore we will not be judged on the day of judgment. We don't have to worry about bearing the wrath of God because Jesus took it at the cross. So when the heavens and earth disappear in fire and all die in it, we as Christians will be with him in glory. Amen? But listen, we will be evaluated for our faithfulness and obedience to God's word. We will not be judged on our salvation because our salvation, redemption, and reconciliation are in Christ Jesus. So when we put our faith in him and his redemptive work, that's all covered. But it doesn't mean we won't be evaluated. So we will be evaluated for our faithfulness and obedience. But let me give you this. On the other side of the coin, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are going to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will judge you according to his moral law, which no man, no woman is able to keep. And I would be quaking in my boots if every one of my thoughts, words, actions, attitudes over the last 62 years were played in front of me. I would cower, cower. Think about it. You can't shut this thing off, the thoughts. You can hide behind the smile, but your brain is going, amen? All right, and they're, listen, they're in for a harsh awakening because they're going to stand before the king of king, not clothed in his righteousness and not justified by his blood. And that is a very scary thing. And what I have down here is all the more, as I said last week, we need to be salt and light. We need to witness this gospel. We don't want anybody to perish for eternity, even your worst enemy. And let me tell you, that's one of the hardest things I know we all you know, wrestle with. But we want to be salt and light to those around us so they come to know the Savior and are not judged by this moral law of God because nobody can stand before it. No one. Amen? And before we move on, we should embrace the Lord's word here with joy and anticipation that not one piece of his scriptures is going to be abolished. And for the very reasons I said, we have heaven to look forward to. If all that happened in the first coming is going to be fulfilled, all that's happening in the second coming is going to be fulfilled, and we will be with him in glory forever. That's his promise. That's his promise. So let's continue now. Let's uh, delve into verse 19, which again states this. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word uh, therefore is really a transition. So what the Lord now speaks to his disciples is the relevance of what he previously stated concerning the scriptures. In essence, Jesus is saying this. He's saying that blessings will come with your adherence to the word of God and the scriptures. So, in other words, we don't have to look to gain our righteousness through the scriptures, but he's saying that blessings will come as we not only adhere to them, obey them, live them, but also teach them to others. So what he's calling us to is obedience. He's saying us, okay, you're saved by grace through faith, but now, in my kingdom, you will be rewarded for your faithfulness, your obedience to my word, and... You're teaching others. In other words, going and the call to go and witness the gospel to others. And listen, um, I have it down here again. We are called to be salt and light. 
and, um, and this keeps resurfacing. If we set aside God's command, listen to what happens. If we are complacent in our relationship with the Lord, do you realize the impact it can have on others' lives? It can have not only in your work environment, it can have an impact in your family, it can have an impact in the church. Doesn't the scriptures talk about don't cause your brother to stumble? So what he's saying here is, look, you not only teach through the words that come out of your mouth, you teach by your lifestyle, how you act, what you do. Let people see Christ in you, which means that you're living it, you're obeying it, and it's shining out from you that others will see it and want to walk in the same way. We don't want to cause another to stumble, whether it's somebody in the world or somebody in the church, somebody in your family. We want to be that godly example because we do not live in a bubble. And, this, and I have down here, you don't wake up one morning and go, hey, I think I'll go do thus and such. It's progressive. As soon as we start to make those little choices, those little foxes, and start to veer off the course, then all of a sudden it gets wider and wider and wider, and we can have not only consequences in our lives, but what we teach through our lifestyles can have consequences in other people's lives. So we want to walk the walk in obedience, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. You will be rewarded for that faithfulness word and your influence on those around us. Family, once we start down the slippery slope of setting aside a portion of God's word and we begin to rationalize or justify our actions, it will be to our own demise and the demise of our families, our friends, our work buddies, and the church itself. So let me make something clear here, okay? The Lord says these commands in verse 19, and he's speaking to the full counsel of God's word. He's not speaking to the traditions of men, but he's saying, I want you to go on now. And as we go forward in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches, I want you to take from the heart of the law and let those things be written on your hearts so that you exemplify them and live them. And now as the disciples, we're listen, called to keep his commands. And I can hear everybody, but we're not under the law. No, we're not under the law. But we're called to keep the Lord's commandments. We're called to keep the heart of the law. And the Son of God will now expand upon this in the uh, rest of chapter 5 and through uh, chapter 7. And he's not talking about just cleaning the outside of the cup so that on the outside we look like we're doing everything right. He's saying, no, clean the inside of the cup by faith. And then you are justified, made righteous, and then you obey so that the outside of the cup is clean also. But it comes from livid because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. We have the Word of God to do it. We have the church to gird us under and do it. The men's group, the ladies get together, the Bible studies, girding each other, making us stronger disciples so that we what? Walk in Christ. Amen? And Jesus will now teach that the truth of how God means just do not murder. He's saying no. Don't hate somebody. Don't harbor bitterness in your heart. These things are the heart of the law that changes us from in here, not just do not commit murder. Not many of us are going to go out of here today and whack somebody. But you know what? We can walk out of here and have an attitude of bitterness. We can walk out of here and be so angry at somebody that we could call it hatred. Just watch Fox News for five minutes. You'll see it turn. Your blood pressure will go through the roof. Just like Ms. Pelosi, we don't want to hate anybody, okay? Sorry, I couldn't resist. But, um, yeah, but that's what the Lord's talking about. It's a deeper issue. It's a hard issue. And it says, do not commit adultery. But it's deeper than that. You're not to look lustfully upon another person. That's why Paul teaches us. The law taught, came 
and basically condemned us because it brought sin out. He said, I wouldn't know what covetousness was unless the Lord told me what covetousness is, if I could say that three times fast. But really, what the law brings out is that we, we're guilty of sin. So he's saying you've got to get to the heart issue. Be sanctified by the blood of Christ and get in the word of God and live the heart of the law, not just the legalistic rituals and traditions of men. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. And he sums up the commands, and if uh, Larry was with us, he would probably fall off his chair. He sums up the commands in two very powerful statements. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your brother as yourself. He says the whole law and the prophets are summed up in these things. Listen to Matthew 22, 34 to 40. This thing is driving me crazy. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It sums up the first big three. And then he goes on to sum up the last seven when he says this. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what do the two commandments start with? Love. Love God, an agape sacrificial love for the Lord, and love others, an agape sacrificial love for others. Because the hardest thing to do is give up self to love somebody else. Amen? But he's saying it's a sacrificial love, the kind of love that Christ showed us in his walk on earth. Amen? And then he calls us, keep those commands. First, uh, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John 2, 3, by this we can be sure that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. First John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And finally, Matthew 7, 12 says the same thing. So in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This sums up the law and the prophets. And we're able to walk this walk. Because, as I said before, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we have the instruction manual right there. But now as we turn to the latter part of the book and look at Jesus' teachings, he tells us, read the epistles. Do not harbor the anger and the bitterness, but turn in forgiveness. Don't steal any longer, but give. In Ephesians, that put on and put off. So this is how we live, by the word of God, but the heart of it. Amen? And I want you to see something else here in verse 19. It says that there's a ranking in what the Lord is saying here. But it's not that one person is more valuable than the other. What he's saying is that some are going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven and some great. And you know what that's going to be based on? Our faithfulness and obedience to the Lord now. He's saying no one person or other is greater in the, uh, based on our faithfulness and obedience to the law. And how do we know that? Look at the scriptures. Jesus said it, but look at 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. In other words, the only way we get in is in Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, in other words, by obedience, living the life, honoring God, or wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet still be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So in other words, he's saying, all your works that we do, 
They should be done as unto the Lord, to love him and love others, and it's going to be evaluated. And if it's not done for the right reasons, it's going to be burned up. You'll get in, but you may not get the rewards that God would have had for you if you would have been more obedient, more faithful in this life. Amen? Sorry. That's what God's word is. You don't have to throw the rocks at me. And now with that said, Jesus really stuns the crown with this final statement. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Could you see these poor Jewish peasants and people that were listening to Jesus going, how are we going to be more righteous than those guys? They're the guys with the phylacteries and the robes that uh, run the temple. Oh, how is our righteousness going to su surpass theirs? Well, first of all, Jesus addresses this misconception that keeping the law is a gateway to heaven. He does say this, the scribes and teachers were truly diligent. They were diligent in pursuit of, of keeping the written code. Unfortunately, they backed it up with stringent commands and rituals that were not part of what God intended. They are the traditions of men. And we must understand that the Lord is not questioning their zeal. They wanted to be righteous, but they couldn't because you can never acquire a righteousness in and of yourselves. What do the scriptures tell us? There is none righteous. No, not one. All will sin and fall short of the glory of God. And if we break one commandment, we're guilty of breaking them all. That's what scriptures teach us. So he's saying it has to surpass that. They're trying to attain their righteousness by keeping this rigid law. And that's not how you get there. It's by faith. It has always been by faith. All the way back to go back as far as Cain and Abel. Abel brought a sacrifice because it was a blood sacrifice by faith. Cain tried to do it by the work of his hands. And on and on and gone. Noah by faith. Abraham by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. We cannot work to get into the kingdom of God. It's only by faith. Righteousness is by grace through faith alone. And then the works will come from them. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Many of us can quote it. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so no one can boast. We can't boast before the Lord. He finished the work, not us. And it goes on in verse 10 and says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Why? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's got something for all of us. We do it as unto him so that he's glorified and others come to know him and others are edified. But it's always been by growing. They were trying to do it in their own strength, in their own righteousness, which was no righteousness at all. But it goes deeper, much deeper. Listen carefully. Let me get it straight. Taking the believer from an external adherence to principles, commands out of legalism, to an inner change, driven by the Spirit of the Lord to emulate Christ. Do you see that? It goes from the external not just keeping these rituals, to the internal, to emulate Jesus. Lynette was teaching about the, the fruit of the Spirit. As you go through those fruit, that's Jesus. Agape love, a sacrificial love, a joy, even in a time of testing and trial, a peace, because we have peace with God, and the peace to know that he's got us in the palm of his hands. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, patience, moral goodness, that is Christ and self-control. Do you not think it took the Lord some control when they're railing him in those trials that he held back when he could have just went, goodbye, and everything done? But he had the self-control. Those are all fruits of the Spirit. So it goes deeper. We can't be surprised by the Lord's words and that he was adamant 
about clearing up the conception that a strict keeping of the laws was important. It was tantamount to heavenly security. In other words, it's going to show itself. If you say you have faith in me, it's going to show itself in how you live, how you speak, what you do, where you go, what your priorities are. Do you love Jesus? Then it should show in your life. It can't just be lip service on a Sunday morning and then as soon as you walk out of here, it's right back to the old lifestyle. Because you know what? You're not going to stand next to your co-workers. You're not going to stand next to me or, somebody, or your spouse. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ and he's going to say, okay, by faith. Did you believe? Yes. Okay, now, were you obedient? Were you faithful? And it's going to just be you and him. That's it. Nobody to say, but you can't say like, well, yeah, I was married to Attila or Mrs. Attila. You know what I mean? And that this is why I acted like that. Sorry, doesn't float. Were you who I called you to be? Amen. And that's one of the things I've learned. I'm really getting off here. Even with marriage, God, what I said in my son's marriage is that you make before God. I'm going to love you and cherish you. No matter what that person does, you're making this vow before God and you're responsible for it. Amen. Not that I abuse or anything like that. We've got to get away from that. But in general, in the overall, you're responsible for the vow that you made. And so is the other, no matter who or what they are. All right? And we've seen it. You hear stories of how spouse just love the other one into the kingdom. Amen? All right, I'm all over the place. All right. So it was more, it was not his purpose to destroy one portion of the moral code, but it would be fulfilled in men's hearts through a higher law, the law of agape, the law of sacrificial love for God, which would create in us a desire to love others as Jesus did so that we fulfill those two great commandments. Amen? Family, listen carefully, because this next statement is really going to sum up the whole sermon. We are clothed in righteousness, and we're justified because of our faith in Christ. But now that we're in Christ, we're called to walk in righteousness. Do you hear me? Called to walk in righteousness with his moral law as our guide. What he will teach about in the rest of Matthew, this is our guide, a heart change. And church, as we do become more like him, that's goal one. Do you hold us into the image of his son? So as we become more like him, goal one accomplished. As we influence those around us, goal two accomplished. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, what? To obey my commands and walk in me. So those are the two goals. As we love God and become more like Christ, goal one accomplished. As we go out and witness, goal two, done. It's a hard issue that leads to obedience to God and love for others. It's very simple. So let me ask you today, have you given your heart to Christ? Have you believed into him as the basis for your eternal salvation? Or are you depending on something else? Because good works won't do it. Religious ritual won't do it. You can go to church every morning. You can say 10,000 prayers a day. But if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means gugutz. It means nothing, okay? It's only faith in Christ alone. These things will fall short. They cannot attain a righteousness that God requires because the only righteousness that will do it is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of what Jesus is teaching in that passage that we looked at today. So let today be the day of salvation if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And for those who have placed their faith in Christ, let's purpose today to walk in righteousness and obey his commands because of the love that we have for God 
and the love that we should have for others. And not out of legalism. It's not done out of legalism. And we want to obey him. And let's reach out to others that the Lord puts in our path and let our light so shine that they'll want to come to know the Savior that we profess and they will have the same hope, the same assured expectation that we have of eternal life. Let me end with this. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we should be thankful that he did. That we don't have to walk under the bondage of the law. That we're free in Christ. We're sanctified in Christ. We're justified in Christ. No longer do we need to worry about a sacrifice to do something to make ourselves righteous with the Lord. It was finished. And because we're in Christ, it's finished. We're justified, clothed in righteousness, but now he calls us to a life of loving him and walking in obedience to the heart of the law, not the legalistic traditions of men. And he's saying, now go also and be an influence in the world so others can have the same hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it in every way you did. You perfectly kept the moral law, my God, concerning your coming. And we know because of the truth of your word, Lord, you will come back and fulfill everything that is written. And Lord God, we thank you that the ceremonial portions of the law are fulfilled in you and there's no longer necessary a sacrifice for sin because you completed it all. And Lord, we thank you that through your Holy Spirit you indwell and you call us to a life of obedience, not to the legalistic traditions of men, but to the heart of your law, to love you and love others, my God. So we pray today through your Holy Spirit that you would help each one of us to walk closer with you, to become more like you, my God. Goal one accomplished. And then go out, Lord, ambassadors and witnesses you desire us to be so that goal two can be accomplished. Lord God, we thank you that you called us out of darkness and you've asked us to be light and soul for those around us. Help us, O oh God. And again, we thank you this morning for this portion of your scripture. And we give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we say, amen and amen. amen.